This episode of Dana Being Dana is brought to you in part by Good Therapy Counseling. Hello, and welcome to Dana Being Dana. I'm Dana Michelle, and I'm thrilled you're with us. My show is about all different aspects of the human connection, things that bring us together, and living life intentionally. In honor of Mental Health Awareness Month, we are talking about addiction to bring awareness of how this pandemic and other world changes have impacted mental health overall and the rise of addictions. Addiction compels someone to repeatedly use substances or engage in behaviors even though they have harmful consequences. Almost 21 million Americans have at least one addiction, yet only 10% of them receive treatment. Drugs, plastic surgery, alcohol, video games, gambling, shopping, food, sex, the internet, risky behaviors, they can all be addictions. Joining me today are Amanda Kunzer, Director of Operations at Good Therapy and a certified alcohol and drug counselor, Dr. Richard Jorgensen, DuPage County Coroner, and Brad and Jessica Gerke, co-founders of the 516 Light Foundation. Thank you all so much for joining me today. In 2020, overdoses in DuPage County were up by 17% compared to the previous year with 112 opioid deaths. Specifically, Cook County saw a 25.6% increase in opioid overdoses during Illinois' first stay-at-home order in 2020. Dr. Jorgensen, can you tell us more about what you've seen? Yes, we've uh, had a marked increase in the number of deaths as well. When I first became coroner in 2012, we had 38 over, uh, overdoses due to opioids, and I considered that to be a crisis. Um, last year, we had a 17% increase in 2020 up to, uh, as you said, 112, and a, an additional 18 overdoses due to other drugs, prescription drugs and cocaine. Um, so you can imagine that from going from 38 to 130 deaths in, in, in a year is a massive increase in the past eight years. Um, during the opioid, or, you know, during the COVID shutdown, we saw an increase in the first six months of 52%, and it ended the year at, at close to 20%. Uh, so this was a massive increase from the year before. And um, in analyzing these deaths, there was a large amount of people who had uh, pre-existing conditions of mental health problems, depression, um, uh, personal and financial difficulties, and uh, previous history of addiction or current addiction. Is there a specific type of person or demographic that is common? Uh, in DuPage County, we do not have a specific demographic. Uh, we do not have a geographic hotspot. It, um, the number of overdoses are all around the co- county in an even basis. We don't have any economic demographic. It's not rich people. It's not poor people. And we also don't have any ethnic de- demographic. Our demographic is, is equivalent to the demographics of the county. The, the only important statistics are, uh, in related to that, is male versus female. There's about 75% of the overdoses are in males and in age. And um, a large number of them are in the 20 and 30-year-old age range. Wow. And I think that's just so important to note 
because it can happen to anyone. Jessica, Absolutely. Jessica, you're known as the stigma crusher. Why is that? Well, first, I want to thank you for having us. I'm truly honored to be here. Uh, yes, uh, Stigma Crusher, what an honor to hold a title that uh, truly, I believe, the reason that was given to me is because I addressed the stigma surrounding addiction. Uh, I believe when people think of addiction, they're thinking of the population that I fell in growing up. I grew up in low-income housing, being raised by two alcoholic parents. Uh, living off the state in uh, projects. So when people think of somebody who's primed to go into addiction, they think of me, right? They think of this uh, maladjusted uh, menace to society, uh, somebody who doesn't care how they affect others. And for me, I was just lost and scared and I was looking for a solution to get out of self. And I sought out the only thing that relieved me of what I was suffering from within, and that was drugs and alcohol. I started at a really early age. At the age of 12, I drank my first drink. Uh, at the age of 14, 15, I picked up my first pills and it just kept escalating. By the time I was 16 years old, I was doing heroin and I was 18, I was doing crack. And when that happened, I mean, it exploded from there. Uh, jails, homelessness, uh, wrecked relationships. So when you think of the stigma and what people see addiction as, that was me. I was living in that painted picture that society had thought addiction looked like. Uh, I overdosed when I was 19 years old, ended up in a hospital in the Chicagoland area. When I got to the hospital, I recall going in and out of consciousness and the doctor standing over my bed, just disgusted. And it was unfortunate because our society was not educated. Mind you, this was some years ago. They weren't educated the way that I believe that we're getting educated to our society today. But they were disgusted. They, all they saw in this bed was a addict. Uh, and I'd love to say that that was when I got sober, but I took a couple more knocks to the ground. And when I turned 23, I was offered treatment. And that's where I found myself. That's where things started to change, right? So that's when I started breaking the stigma is that I wasn't a product of my environment, that I just needed a chance. I just needed resources presented to me. And when that, I mean, I just took off. Yes, it was difficult at the beginning. I think that anybody in early recovery trying to grab at anything that they can and, and not go back to using, uh, it, it was the easier, softer way, but it takes work. And because of that, I, that high school homelessness, uh, dropout, um, all of those things no longer hold me down. I'm a student, just uh, internship away, becoming a CADC. I'm a supervisor at a treatment center. I'm a liaison for the Naperville Police Department. I'm a co-founder of the 516 Light Foundation. So what I do today is show people that, although that you saw that girl who was lost, that if we give those people, us, me, a chance, we can have productive members of society who can give back. And that's why I believe I can help break our stigma in our society. Yes, thank you. Brad, 
can you briefly tell us your story? Of course, and Dana, thanks again for having us come on your show and bringing light to this important subject. Um, let me start off by saying, statistically, I should not be alive. Um, did I think that when I was growing up? No. My family, my parents happily married. Uh, my sister, you know, she loved for me. Um, grandparents loved for me. Aunts and uncles, they all loved for me. Uh, parents, they supported me in every avenue possible, whether it was snowboarding or aggressive skating or soccer or my art. Uh, they always wanted the best for me. There was no sight of addiction in my future um, by the picture of me growing up. But I will say when I was growing up and when I was sober, I felt like I was on the outside looking in, right? I didn't get the joke. I didn't feel a part of, I didn't feel that, you know, I was funny enough or smart enough for this, that, and the third. Now, I will say the first time I ever picked up a drink was in fourth grade. Lo and behold, something magical happened for me in that moment. What happened is my fears fell from me. I started feeling smart. I started feeling good looking. I started feeling all these things I did not feel while I was sober. So in my mind automatically remembered that as a solution. As time went on, the progression developed onto smoking weed. In high school, me and some friends, uh, we started experimenting with harder drugs, crack cocaine, ecstasy, um, Xanax, opioids that were in a prescription form. Just outside of high school, we all started experimenting with heroin. At this point, when I first saw it, it was in powder form. Well, I have sniffed cocaine plenty of times before that. I've sniffed Adderall plenty of times before that. So I didn't see the harm in sniffing just a little bit of heroin because I've already done it in pill form. Now, as the progression kind of went with heroin, we started shooting. Um, I remember the first time me and my friend, we tried to stop using together and we said, all right, let's just go our own ways for like the next two weeks and we'll reconnect. He called me about three or four days later and said, dude, I feel like I got the flu. I just can't handle this anymore. I said, yeah, me too. Let's go get high just to get through this flu. Immediately after picking up those bags of heroin, threw up outside of the window and turned to him and said, Joe, I know exactly why they call it a fix. It was fixed. My body was going through a withdrawal. I didn't have the education and information of what I was actually going through. Now, I will say as time went on, uh, throughout all of our addictions, my friends from high school, you know, unfortunately, eight of them have passed away as a direct result of this disease. Wow. Uh, of, an, of an overdose, yeah. Um, which later on, as my, you know, uh, disease, my alcoholism, my drug addiction progressed, um, I would go to overdose. I would be homeless. I would be living on the streets. I would be going in and out of jails and detoxes and treatment centers wishing to want to stop. You could have asked me, Brad, do you want to stop using? I would have said yes. You could have given me a lie detector test. I would have passed it with flying colors. Two hours later, I'm driving on the way to the west side, crying, going, why am I going to do this again? So one of the things you said, Brad, was that addiction appears to be both physical and mental. Amanda, can you tell us the difference between uh, an addiction and an occasional overindulgence? So an overindulgence is, you know, you had that third piece of pie at Thanksgiving over, you know, a whole big meal you already had. And you don't feel good and you probably... If you had that choice again, you wouldn't you wouldn't make that third piece of pie a choice. The addiction comes in um, if you are feeling really bad um, and you still keep drinking every day. You're drinking to cover up the anxiety or the depression to make the day a little bit more tolerable. And you keep saying to yourself, you know what? This is going to be it. I'm, I'm going to stop tomorrow. It's just been stressful at work. And then the next day comes and you're still needing to use to deal with those um 
you know, work meetings or situations at home. It's just you cannot stop. Thank you. Jessica, Brad, tell us about 516 Light Foundation, which stands for Living in Great Hope Today, and how you impact that critical moment for individuals in treatment. Jessica and I have a lot of passion for helping others and giving back to our community. The 516 stems from our home and the address that we had, where we invited people in to live in sober living. We had about 26 people that came through the house, uh, and our success rate was pretty good with that. We took them in right off the streets or from a, from a treatment center. Um, out of those 26 people, all of them remained sober except for four of them. Out of those four, two of them came back and are still sober today. Uh, some of the things that Jessica and I like to do through the 516 Light Foundation is obviously giving back to the community, which would include going into the high schools or talking with college students, going to community events, trying to educate, spread awareness, education and resources. And like Jessica had talked about earlier, really breaking that stigma to addiction to show others that we do recover from this disease. Um, I don't want to talk too much about it because I think it's important that Jessica also talks about her experiences and why we formed the 516 Light Foundation as well. Thank you, absolutely. Uh, part of our journey is doing this together. And uh, Brad, it, it was a dream that we came together and really did, he hit it on the head because we are passionate and we know how much it contributes to our own recovery. Uh, we really wanted to give back. And we saw that with our 516 Sober Home uh, although we had to, you know, move to the next chapter of our life, we got married, uh, you know, we want to start a family and all those beautiful things that life has to offer, uh, we passed on the home. But we still want to give back. We still want to contribute to our community. And where our community is lacking is in those resources. And more importantly, it's lacking the hope, right? Our community needs to know that recovery is possible. And they need to know that there's help out there. What does that look like? I think there's a critical point in recovery that most of us who come into recovery need. And it's, you know, that accountability, that structure. Uh, I really believe that that can happen in a structured environment. And what our community needs is more of that sober living component. Right. I think that we can help with clothing. We can help with job seeking, which kind of falls under case management and a sort or social work. But that real piece that I think our community is missing is getting that sober living. So uh, we want to help people with that transition between treatment to sober living and helping them get back into society and really live their fullest life. And that's that critical piece where 516 comes in. I think that's the bread and butter of what you do in meeting people in that moment uh, when they need the most support, they're the most vulnerable, uh, and you reduce their risk of, of backsliding. And um, I think that is so important. So don't go away. We're going to take a short break. We'll be right back with Addiction on Dana Being Dana.
This episode of Data Being Data is brought to you in part by Good Therapy Counseling. Welcome back to Dana Being Dana, where we are talking about addiction. Amanda, women make up 40% of the workforce. How have they been impacted by the pandemic in ways that intersect with addiction? So women are drinking more during the pandemic um, because the brunt of the parenting, um, caring for the children, the family really falls on them. Um, women also reported higher rates um, related to changes in productivity and sleep. Um, the research is still unfolding, obviously, of what happened during this pandemic, but um, it's showing the psychological stresses related to COVID is, asso- is associated with greater drinking for women. One thing that's important for people to understand is that addiction doesn't have to be a severe episodic event. There are so many different kinds of addictions um, from major tragedy to painkillers. So I want to talk about the progression and, and how one's environment can play into addiction vulnerabilities. Dr. Jorgensen? Yes, um, I can speak to that both as a coroner and as a physician. Um, I uh, prescribed a lot of opiates myself and uh, can tell you that the history of this in the country is the doctor prescribing opiates led very much to the opioid overdoses and addictions that are out there right now. I've met uh, numerous people who started their addiction to opiates through the pain prescription um, uh, pathway. And um, many of these type of things, whether used illicitly or with a legitimate prescription have led to addictions uh, and ultimately heroin addiction. Brad? I believe if you're riddled with the disease of addiction, um, once you start using, it will set that addiction off. Whether you're introduced to it by opioids through a prescription or through a friend or through having your ambitions lowered by drinking and and smoking marijuana and something else is introduced to them and they see them not you know a big issue with taking something else into their system um i think it's really hard to uh, try and really pinpoint on who's going to become addicted and who's not in today's world eventually somebody will pick something up and it'll either set off that addiction or it will not I know for myself, once I start using, my body reacts in a physical reaction to where the craving of more of the same is beyond my mental control. And when I'm stone cold sober, my mind, my obsession, my illusion, delusion, insanity that I have when I'm stone cold sober always tells me a lie that this time's going to be different. And here's how some way, someday I'll be able to control and manage my drinking and my drugging. I go ahead, take the action, put it into my body and break out more of the same. How do you get someone to realize that there is an issue? Amanda, what do you ask to get your clients to self-check? It's really about the self-check, right? It's about thinking about how long could I go without having a drink? What does it feel like when I try to cut down? Am I thinking about it all the time? Am I anxious? Am I irritable? Am I snapping at family and friends? Or is it easy? Can I go two days without a drink? Can I go three days? Or Can I maybe go two weeks without, you know, a substance just to really self-check on what that feels like in your body and in your brain and really being honest about it, writing it down, talking about it. Whether it's a drink, Amanda, or a purchase or um, whatever that activity is, whatever that indulgent behavior is um, and, and thinking about how they feel, you know, when they when they try to abstain. 
I want to shift gears a bit and talk about support. Uh, Jessica, how critical is it about support when it comes to successful and lasting recovery? Uh, what a great question. Support is one of those components that is desperately needed for somebody to achieve recovery. I truly believe that. Without the army of women around me, supporting me, lifting me up when I feel like I was failing, uh, to help me to get out of my own head, uh, that, that right there is a deep, dark hole. When you're first in addiction and, and your thinking is still kind of prone to thinking about drugs and alcohol, um, you need to get out of that thought process. And the best way is to talk to somebody. And we always don't always have counselors at our fingertips. Uh, so people who are active in long-term recovery are an important foundation to that. It is one of the powers that we have in our community. Dr. Jorgensen, Amanda, are there signs of addiction that we look for or that we should be looking for in others? Personally, when, when you're feeling like someone is, is using a coworker or a friend or a family, there's going to be those behavior signs, right? They're going to be maybe irritable, withdrawn, um, sleeping a lot, not sleeping, losing weight, um, gaining weight. You'll see physical changes depending on their alcohol or drug use. Um, sometimes they'll have a runny nose. So the, there will be physical changes as well as behavioral changes. And as a coroner talking to families who have, have lost uh, their children or loved ones, um, very often we'll hear people say that they didn't notice anything. And then with reflection, they'll say, you know what, I really noticed that my son changed a lot. And some of the things they talk about is that they changed their friends. They used to be an A student. Now they're a C or D student. They used to always go to school and be interested in school. Or that now they quit the football team and they're, they're not involved anymore and they're anxious all the time or sleepy all the time, depending on what type of drugs you're using. So uh, unfortunately, a lot of those changes are also the, the signs and symptoms of being a teenager and going to high school. But the, most of these things, when you see them, they're, they're serious changes, and they're usually changes that um, most parents or most friends and family notice as being a, a severe change in that person's demeanor and behavior. When it comes to supporting loved ones who are treating addiction, um, what advice do you have for people to maintain their own self-care and boundaries in that support? So, um, definitely my first, my first uh, advice would be um, educate yourself. Learn about this addiction. Just like you would with any family member who has diabetes or cancer, you would read about it and figure out what is the best way to help them. Um, <clears throat> also, Support is a wonderful thing, but you also need to understand the difference between support and enabling, okay? Support is, hey, I'm going to give you a ride to your meeting or a doctor's appointment. Enabling is, you know what, um, all right, I'll call you into work. You know, it's not a problem. I know you were up late with, you know, the other stuff. Or, hey, you know what, I'm going to pay your bills because I know you made a mistake and you spent all your money on, you know, the substance of your choice. Um, that kind of stuff is enabling and that is not helping someone who has an addiction. Um, get yourself professional help, right? Um, you know, a counselor, a treatment facility, you know, resources can really help you as well as support groups like AA, Al-Anon, 
um, they're re- they're there for a reason, and it's it's a long-standing program um, that has really helped a lot of people. So, what would you say is the first step? Step is acknowledging that there's a problem. They need to recognize there's a problem, and you or and family can say, "Hey, there's a problem here," you know, and and constantly bringing it up and pointing stuff out. Get your flow charts out, but until that person says, "I get it," it's it is an issue, then they can start working steps or going into a treatment place, um, seeing their counselor about it and addressing it. What advice do each of you have for those who may be struggling? Jessica, I'll start with you. Okay. Um, People who are struggling with addiction, uh, I would love for them to know or get out more in our community that there are resources, that you're not alone, that you're not a bad person trying to be good. You're a sick person who needs help getting well. Yeah. Dr. Jorgensen? I would uh, I would add something that Amanda just said. Um, the, the idea that you're gonna go to your house and, and just dry out for a couple of weeks and you're gonna be fine uh, is not gonna work. You need professional help and you need to seek out somebody who is going to give you the deep-seated, long-term professional help that you need to overcome an addiction uh, pretty much to anything. Brad? Reach out for help, raise your hand, say, hey, I need help, I can't do this alone. You know, where, where there's a breath, there's a chance, and where there's a chance, there's recovery. It's available to everybody and everyone. So please jump on the, on the wagon and, and ride that train to, to recovery. Yes. Amanda. Definitely. Um, Depending on your drug of choice, you know, drying out or detox on your own, it's dangerous because depending on what your drug of choice is, like alcohol, depending on how much you've been using, you can die um, if it's not medically managed. So reaching out to a treatment facility, an ER, uh, good therapy counseling, and we can talk about where you're at, what's going on, and gear you to somewhere where you can detox safely, or maybe you don't need detox. Maybe you need a partial program. Maybe you need inpatient, but we can help you with that. And and you don't have to do it alone. And whether it be gambling, um, um, behavioral addictions that, that drain you financially, that put a strain on your relationships, um, they're all important, as you said, you know, to seek help, to acknowledge the issue uh, and, and go from there. If you get nothing else from this episode, I want you to know that addiction can happen to anyone. It can happen to me. It can happen to you. We are in trying times that make us all susceptible to falling into habits and traits that lead to addiction. To those who are struggling, know that you are not alone. We've shared valuable tips in identifying addictive traits for others, for yourself. May we all exhibit compassion in getting the help that is needed. Special thanks to Good Therapy and the incredible work that they do in this space. Hopefully you have been entertained, if not encouraged or inspired. I do not promise to be an expert, nor do I have all the answers. I'm just Dana being Dana. See you next time. This episode of Dana Being Dana is brought to you in part by Good Therapy Counseling.